Welcome, everybody, to Broadcast Team Alpha, where we bring you cutting-edge conversation while exploring the quantum possibilities. And I know I say this so often, but we are so doing it again tonight. So put your seatbelt on because we have an incredible guest that Augie is going to tell us about in just a couple of minutes. I'm Nori Love. My co-host is Augie Nas. For any of you who do not know us, welcome if you're new to us. Um, I would like to invite you to join our membership group. Um, it's right here. It's right here on YouTube. If that's where you're watching us, um, Matt can put the link in the chat. And it's kind of uh, like being more up close and personal with us. We have exclusive content only for the members. It's it's a nominal fee. It's really a small fee. And it's there's exclusive content. And then the third Tuesday of every month, we have a gathering where it can be questions and answers or we can talk about topics that you want to talk about. Or you can let us know more of the content that you want to see on Broadcast Team Alpha. You know, Broadcast Team Alpha is expanding. We've got the Friday show. It's a 30 minute show really fast. Quantum well-being. So that's that's anything under the umbrella of quantum well-being. We have a lot of really cool things to talk about. It's only th it's only 30 minutes, Friday night, 7.30, right here on Broadcast Team Alpha. And we've got something new coming up. I'm not going to do the spoiler alert, um, but we've got more coming for you. And I just want to give a shout out to our friends over at the Conscious Awakening Network. We are co-creating with them over on their incredible platform. They've got quite a remarkable platform going on over there. You can catch our our shows streaming there, and you may even see some other offerings from Augie and I over there that you might not see over here. So take a peek at what's going on over there. As always, I want to thank you for being here with us. Thank you for the chat. You guys are the best in the chat room. And without any further ado, Augie, please tell us about our esteemed guest. Oh, I'm going to love doing this because this is going to be so good. We have a time traveler with us. And uh, I'm going to leave you hanging for just about 30 seconds because then I'm going to tell you his name. Tonight we are going on a journey. And maybe by the time this hour is over, you will realize that maybe the world that we have been or think we have been living in is not quite the way that we have been told. And uh, time and space and our existence is not exactly what you expect. And uh, it's not that they necessarily have lied to us when we went to school, all the time anyway. It's just because they didn't know either. So they taught us what they knew. And uh, to talk more about this, we have Andrew Basiago with us. Many of you know him, but I want to say a few things anyway. He is an American lawyer. He's a writer, public speaker, media personality, and a presidential candidate in the past. And he's best known for serving as a U.S. chrononaut in the Pegasus, in the, the Project Pegasus, during the project of time travel, and as a U.S. astronaut in the Project Mars, 
during the beginning of the United States interplanetary exploration. I know there are some words in here that we maybe haven't heard before. So why haven't we heard about Project Pegasus and Project Mars? Well, maybe it is because the people that run those programs, that is a rogue group that is answers, answers to none. And they are well-funded through the $21 trillion that is missing from the military budget of the United States since the Second World War. Wow. And that is something to consider. You can do absolutely anything with that kind of money. And Andrew Basiago is here to tell us about his experience. Welcome to the show, Andrew. Welcome, Andrew. <laughs> Thank you, Augie and, and Nori. It's good to be back with you. Oh, so wonderful to have you back. So your life is remarkable. <laughs> your life is so remarkable, Andrew. When did you realize that your trajectory was not going to be the average American's trajectory? You know, did it happen in childhood or when did you begin to see the signs that that you you were different? You know, you had a different mission here. It happened very early in childhood. I was watching my two older brothers uh, construct and knock down sort of like a mini. Um, World Trade Center type complex on the floor of our rec room in Mars Plains, New Jersey. And I thought, why in on this planet, in this lifetime, does something have to be built from the floor or the ground up? Why can't it be like it's been during some of my lifetimes where you can just float things like a planet in our solar system? And so I took my little alphabet blocks and tinker toys and I, I levitated them, you know, not, not going from having been on the floor and somehow propelled up, but literally suspending freestanding in space. Wow. Now, my dad uh, was a, a Lehigh University educated electrical engineer, class of 1951. I came along and was born in 1961. And he came out of the basement where he had a carpentry shop. And he was watching his fifth child and, and youngest son, his number three son, as he used to call me. Mm -hmm. And I was levitating my toys. And he knew that that, was, that violated the laws of physics. So he must have informed the Department of Defense of my special abilities, which also included sort of psychic ability that was off the chart, because he was... He was ordered to go to Curtis Wright in Woodridge, New Jersey, in October of 1952, during, after the uh, famous overflight of Washington, D.C., by what, what was it, nine, nine extraterrestrial craft clocked at traveling at 7,000 miles per hour by Langley Air Force Base. My dad was uh, attached at Curtis Wright to the Ramjet Project. It's kind of been forgotten. We don't see it very often or haven't seen it at all on today's UFO shows. But the ramjet was an advanced space plane that would draw uh, oxygen through this unique baffle on the front of the plane and propel it out of a, a baffle on the back of the plane. And that 
specifically was a U.S. aircraft to chase the extraterrestrial visitors away from our planet. And so my dad was working in that, on that at Curtis Wright from 1952, a couple of months after the overflight of Washington, D.C., till 1955. And then so just six years later, I came along and very early in my child, I was three at that time, he was seeing these special abilities, like the ability to levitate my toys. So I was pretty sure at that point that I had specialized abilities that were sort of confounding the adults in my informing environment, like my own parents. But yeah. that probably led to my, my placement by the Department of Defense in their records. And then when they began assembling those 140 children who would be in Project Pegasus, begin testing and training on eight different modalities of time travel by 1970, that's probably why I was in their, in their files. Wow. Wow. Yes. I, I can imagine seeing your kids sitting there with levitating toys. That would get somebody's attention. And that is worthy of more investigation. So you didn't have a chance. They brought you somewhere where they were going to find out what's going on in your head. Right. And, and you know, in our time, you know, when we, when we you know, were enrolled in school, the, the kids that became uh, time travelers, you know, chrononauts or DARPA began as remote viewers, not at SRI in 1972, but for the U.S. Navy in 1969. I'd like to say that all of the kids who were involved in Project Pegasus as our first generation of chrononauts began as remote viewers for the Office of Naval Intelligence. We were small mediums at large. So that was the immediate connection between being brought into secret Defense Department activities and then actually being involved in time travel by it, by DARPA and other spin-offs of the Navy. Um, because remote viewing did not begin at SRI in 1972. It began in with kids working for the Office of Naval Intelligence because they knew we were having dreams that would then come true. I would, for example, often dream of what was on the front page of the New York Times. And my dad would send me out to go get it in the morning at, you know, outside our house uh, in suburban New Jersey. And what I had told him was on the cover would be on the cover. So they were really tapping the, the specialized ability of young people to do things because they, you know, kids don't know what they can't do and they do amazing things just as was That's featured in, in the film, the matrix. Yes. Hmm. There is no spoon, right? <laughs> I love what you, I love what you said. Um, small mediums at large that uh, you're right. That language is beautiful. <laughs> I mean, one of the things I was asked to do, in 1969 was use my ability to, for example, dream things in, let's say, the intervening week between that Tuesday and the next Tuesday. And a lieutenant commander from the U.S. Navy was at our school, and they showed us the, uh, the, the picture of Lieutenant Commander John McCain. He's the individual who later became the 
senior senator from Arizona and a presidential candidate in 2008 for the Republican Party. And they they wanted us to look at the picture of Senator McCain featured on the English Wikipedia site. Of course, Wikipedia at that time did not exist. Right. And, uh, and, uh, but they used his ensign photograph from Annapolis and they wanted us to see, to see whether he was in the Hanoi Hilton in Vietnam. It was, was he being kept in that, um, prisoner of war compound? And if he was, they showed us a picture of one of the buildings there. Where was he? And, uh, I saw what was happening to, uh, Lieutenant Commander McCain, when I was dreaming at night, and he was really being mistreated. You know, wow. he was being suspended by his elbows. He was being tortured. Yes. Uh, I, I found him living in this little tiger cage on the left side of the compound, and uh, as did one of the other girls. There were about maybe about 12 kids in this meeting from various elementary schools in my area. I sought out Senator McCain in 2008. Um, I was practicing law in Washington, and he was visiting Oregon. But the president of Oregonians for McCain did not connect me to uh, Senator McCain. And I really just want to tell him, do you realize that your father had the psychic kids in New Jersey looking for you when you were a POW in North Vietnam? So I never had a chance really to discuss that with him. But that's what I did. And I did see him. And I told the um, the lieutenant commander from the Office of Naval Research, when he returned the next Tuesday, as did a little girl sitting next to me, what we saw of Senator McCain's captivity. And so it's really part of tied up also in the history of the Vietnam era, as it were. We were children of the 60s, and we were doing things that were germane to Defense Department activities of that era. Yeah, and when you uh, got into this program, they also went through a little bit of education with you, I guess, upgrading, and uh, they kind of uh, educate you on what you could do and maybe a little bit of how you could do it. Well, they had built these speed learning machines called Galileo. And I do know there was a Vatican connection because there was a, there was a word Civ on some of those educational lessons, which stands for Servicio Intelligentsia Vaticano, Vatican Intelligence Agency. Yep. But Galileo was a speed learning module where they had trained us to read incredibly quickly with full comprehension. They had a special modality to learn how to speed read. And this is like when we began in Project Pegasus in uh, initially in the first grade, but in a real sort of complicated way in the beginning of my third grade year, which was fall of 1969. And what they would do is they would give us a learning module on Galileo and we would speed read it, right? Let's say about the career and ideas of the brilliant Serbian immigrant uh, inventor and physicist Nikola Tesla, which is everything about Tesla. And then they would take us up to where that device was that they were going to use that was of of Tesla's invention. So we'd kind of be briefed on where we were going. 
Um, my dad was participating in that. Jack Pruitt was another team leader on Project Pegasus. He became, of course, the research director for Project Montauk in the early 80s. I last met with Jack in June this month, in 20 years ago. In, uh, in the Sweeney Auditorium in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And as somebody coming back from the project, he advised me how all the kids were getting a disease that mimicked diabetes. So, you know, we get these learning lessons from Galileo, and then we'd be ready to be taken on a kind of an acclimation trip to where in New Jersey, Ohio, or New Mexico, these advanced quantum access devices were located. The um, sort of the, um, the things that they were doing in advanced quantum physics, they wanted us to know the origination of, of specific devices. So that was a really intense uh, lesson plan on the history of science and society from the year 1450, which of course was Galileo's time. Mm -hmm. So as mostly Italian and Polish kids uh, from New Jersey, it was pretty exciting to know we were sort of linking back to Galileo and more modern figures like Tesla and so forth. So we, I, I like to describe how I, I almost felt like a yo-yo on the end of a string because I definitely knew they were doing something new and unprecedented and special and that we were very lucky kids to have been part of it. Yeah, and uh, I remember also that you have talked about the equipment that they used to send you into another time with. Could you explain a little bit about that equipment? It looked like kind of like maybe two you went between two modules and talk a little bit about this because I, I'm well, a technician. Yeah, what not? Yeah. Yeah, you're talking about the Tesla teleporter. It had basically two armatures or booms that were roughly shaped like elephants' tusks, and they were battleship gray. And they were sitting on the floor of Building 68 at Curtis Wright in, in Woodridge, New Jersey, the, the very Curtis Wright Aeronautical Company facility in Woodridge that they had sent my dad to in October of 1952 to build the ramjet. And what had happened is somebody had set that up in that building, Building 68, and based on Tesla's paperwork that was collected not by the FBI, but by the what was then known as the War Department, which later became known as the, um, the Defense Department. And Tesla had written on that paperwork, Energetic Array. So in, the, in DARPA and the Defense Department, it began being known as a Tesla Energetic Array, which was actually the origin of the word Tesseract in Madeleine LaEngle's famous book, A Wrinkle in Time which when I showed that book to my dad and talked about all the things in Project Pegasus that were being placed in that, he said, yeah, 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 I know. Um, that's called disinformation. That's the first time I heard disinformation was in regard to that book. <laughs> now, that book was written in 1962. So that had to be really around the time of such reductions to practice of the Tesla teleporter. What happened is 
one of the technicians in building 68 wanted to get a, a screwdriver across the hall, you know, across the shop floor. And he tumbled through the teleporter because it was, it was on and it had, you know, that those elephant-like tusks. Between them would fall like this radiant energy that Tesla was working with. And when we jumped through it at least at a meter per second, so we wouldn't have a, some part of our body dismembered, we would go through a, what's called a vortal tunnel. It was a kind of a bluish-white tunnel through time-space. And we would be getting from, my dad and I would be getting from um, Woodridge, New Jersey, to Santa Fe, New Mexico, a distance of some, um, I guess, 2,005 miles in yeah. several seconds. But that was one of the devices. Now, when we first started doing it, it was travel in real time, but at a tremendous rate of speed. But then they found a way to adjust the time we were arriving. So the Tesla tele teleporter very early into the beginning of Project Pegasus, certainly by 1970, became a time machine. It wasn't just real-time travel very quickly, albeit through this mortal tunnel in time space. They began manipulating the device so that the arrival time was in what we call the past or future. There was also a device called a chronovisor, which owed to two Vatican musicologists, Pellegrino Ernetti and Augustino Gemelli. They were studying as musicologists and as um, Catholic priests teaching at the uh, Catholic University of Milan, you know, for the Vatican, yeah. were studying Gregorian chants. And they wanted to learn, why do Gregorian chants have such phenomenal spiritual qualities? What's in it? And what they were developing a specialized microphone to do so, and something that Father Gemelli's father had said to him came through the device, through this specialized microphone. And it was his dad's voice. So uh, Ernetti and Gemelli partnered with the famous Italian physicist Enrico Fermi, who had also obviously been part of Project Manhattan, the plot, you know, the the program to build the atomic bomb. And by 1952, they had a so-called chronovisor, or chronovisor, il, il chronovisor in Italian, in which you could see an event occurring initially in the past. And they sent me to a lot of places when Pegasus was using chronovisors. I mean, a, a lot of places. I even went back in time and advised General George Washington at uh, the Brooklyn Heights, his, his tent at Brooklyn Heights in August of 1776, I advised General Washington, not yet President Washington, to retreat his troops from New York Harbor. So I had some really amazing, lucky experiences as, as a very young child. Uh, yeah. They were using kit for a variety of reasons. There was also something called a plasma confinement chamber and that's how they got me to Gettysburg to see Lincoln give the Gettysburg Address. And I was photographed there in the so-called Josephine Cobb image of Lincoln at Gettysburg. Mm -hmm. uh, but there were eight modalities of time travel, but those were three of the most amazing devices that, that they were developing. Wow. And by 1970, Just they had them.
Basically, time travel emerged in the United States by 1970. But I just wanted to bring up the point about the uh, Madeleine Engel's famous children's novel. In fact, I think it won that that Newbery Prize as as a novel for for children. Because, like like I said, I believe that was published in 1962, and my dad had described how it was written as uh, disinformation to conceal Project Pegasus of DARPA. But it was a DARPA program. There was a lot of Vatican input. Certainly the chronovisors were developed by Ernetti and Gemelli. Okay. I, uh, you have, they brought you back to have a visit with General Washington. That is such a phenomenal yeah. story. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I would. But before doing so, I'd like to mention, I am a member of the Washington Bar at the state level. The Washington State Bar Association. Anybody here can find it. My name is spelled Basiago. It's pronounced Bashago. But that is on the Internet. Now, I also was qualified to be a member of the U.S. District Court for the Western District of Washington. That's the western side of the Cascades, roughly between Seattle in the north and Vancouver, Washington in the south. Why would I be endangering a state and a federal bar license by making up some crazy story? Right. Uh, Everything I've said about these subjects is true, including hopefully the one we'll talk to about tonight about going to Mars. Yes. I have been applying the Mark Twain principle of always tell the truth because therefore you don't have to remember anything. And, And that's why it's been quite easy to do about 600 of these radio interviews and sort of 10 network TV shows, including a few coming up. I have been telling the, the honest truth, the, the, plain, the plain truth. Mm. And uh, so, Nagi, what was that question again? Oh, that was uh, when you went back in time to meet with General oh, right, Washington. Right. right, right. They were using us for a variety of reasons. So they were, one of the reasons with Chronovision was that when adults were used, their voices, a laugh, a cough, their footfall, would make the hologram that the chronovisors produced go on the blink. What what the chronovisor was doing was putting an electromagnetic signal through eight-sided bismuth crystal. And what would happen is a cube of about 20 by 20 feet of hologrammatic light would pop out of that crystal, that eight-sided bismuth crystal. And with that device, they could essentially bring a small part of the quantum hologram to where we were. So, for example, when I was in Project Pegasus, they sent me eight times to Ford's Theater on, what was it, April 14th of uh, 1865, with the express mission of seeing who shot President Lincoln, which unfortunately was a mission that I didn't succeed at. Because I, as I found much later by one of my followers, the Lincolns, Mr. and Mrs., came to the theater late that night. Then they were serenaded by the actors starring in Our American Cousin, starring Laura Keene, and everybody in attendance at Ford's Theater. So I only, out of the eight times I was sent in the summer of 1971, um, I saw... You know, Abraham Lincoln sitting on the stage 
and he was very emaciated. And I also, on another time, I also saw President and Mrs. Lincoln walking into the theater, and I saw them in the lobby. Um, but they were using kids so that the hologram on the chronovisor wouldn't collapse. It very often did when adults' sounds were being produced. And uh, so they, they could either use very, very bright, small people, you know, midgets, or they could use children who were very bright. And so they had been identifying which American school children had advanced psychic ability, advanced intelligence, and a great leadership potential in, um, in what was known as Project Talent. That was that week of testing. That, and, you know, it was a week of testing on a Saturday morning <laughs> that we were all doing. And then we would get those four-sided pens, the pens with the right. black, blue, red, and, and, and green ink. Yes. And we use it with our spirograph device, right? But that was Project Talent. And that was an idea of Admiral, um, oh gosh, what was his name? He was a famous, ad, the Admiral who had been the mentor for President Jimmy Carter um, had begun that program. So they already had a list of really bright and really psychically gifted kids. But then they started testing human factors as well, you know, more in random characteristics and traits. And most of us who began as remote viewers were already in those lists. And then we were dropped in remote viewing for the ONI and then into Project Pegasus under DARPA. But um, the, the purpose of sending me to Brooklyn Heights was to advise General Washington to retreat his troops from New York Harbor, which he did. But that's always been a mystery. I mean, even David McCulloch in his book 1776, which was published in 2005, stated that we still don't know why Washington decided to do that. The reason is because I told him. Now, why was I sent there out of all these 140 kids in the program? I wasn't sent there because of special abilities. I was sent there because they were investigating how chronovision was working. And to their astonish astonishment, I was in Washington's tent advising him to do so. They, so they thought, God, if we don't send Andy now to do what, what we already see him doing, maybe the United States won't become a country because we'll lose the Revolutionary War. So that was an urgent necessity. I literally had a linguist from DARPA. She was a woman about 50 years old who came in and had me memorize the statement that they had already recorded me saying to Washington. So that really brings, brings up the paradox of quantum access. When that happens and you send somebody on a mission because you've filmed the results of that mission, which is coming first, you know, the chicken or the egg, the time travel or the time traveler. It's really not a resolvable question. It's, it's an abiding mystery, but the bottom line is they they used Chronovision to look into Washington's tent on Brooklyn Heights, and there I was as myself, giving wow. him an, essentially a demarche from the U.S. government. So they thought, we better have Andy go and do that demarche, or we not, might not become the United States of America. We'll still be part of Britain. So, so they did. So I was very lucky. There was some sort of quantum 
interpolation of my life, and I don't know why. I do believe that I have memories of being Doug Hammarskjöld in my last life. Doug died, very interesting date, um, September 18th, 1961, the day of my birth. And I even remember complaining to my spirit guides, look, I was Doug Hammarskjöld, and you think I didn't show enough compassion? And they said, yes, as Doug, you were trying to show Doug being compassionate. Oh, here's Doug preventing a war. Here's Doug preventing... uh, you know, the Belgian Congo from fighting with its neighbors or whatever. So that's what I think may have happened, but I, I don't really know. But I was gifted with incredibly original experiences. I, and I didn't really do anything in this life to qualify for that. I mean, I was high IQ and, and very psychic, but I was just a, the youngest of five from, from five healthy um, brothers and sisters growing up in uh, being born in Morristown and growing up in Morris Plains, New Jersey. It was never really explained, but I think it may have been a past life um, sort of karmic payoff in my last life, because mm-hmm. I think I was homers. I mean, I, I said to, to my brothers and sisters when I was three years old again, mm-hmm. I went to them at their, the desk that my dad made for each of us in our study next to the, the boys' bedroom on the third level of the house. And I said to all my brothers and sisters, I'm dog. And I don't even talk about that. I've written in my past life book, but because people say, well, now he's dog commercial. You know, they criticized, um, who was that? Uh, the guy who was saying he was uh, Tesla was a Patrick Flanagan. And they were criticizing David Wilcock for stating that he had been. Um, Edgar Casey. Oh, Edgar Casey, yes. Yeah. I do believe I was Hammerschold, and that could have been the sort of the karmic payoff is, you know, I know Hammerschold was, and I remember myself being very interested in the paranormal. Doc was sitting there at his, his weekend retreat in Brewster, New York, reading about the paranormal on, you know, Saturday mornings off from his job at the UN. And I think I was maybe given the opportunity to have very paranormal experiences just to, you know, as a karmic payoff for my, my piece work done as Doug Hammerschel, but I don't know. There was a connection to my dad's work and he was proud of his, all of his children. And he got me in, in both uh, project Pegasus and project Mars. We may have been the, the only father and son team to have ever been together on a, on another planet because he went up there in 1984 on, on project Mars. And I was going between, um, let's see, from 1981 to 84, from age 11 to 19. So my dad went during my last year I was going. And I asked somebody at the CIA, why did he want to go? And he said, he just wanted to be up there with you. So he he, he had me tell the story of Pegasus. And I asked him, you know, Dad, why after all this time tell everybody about Pegasus? And he said, because we were part of something great. So, you know, everybody talks about these people who are working for the U.S. military and intel community, but imagine helping achieve time travel and going to Mars, and they haven't even told anybody about that. Yeah. Even the... You talk, um, you, you talk about Doug Hammarskjöld, and uh, I... I know a few things about him. He was one of the first people, um, second or third, I think maybe the uh, 
heads of the UN, but he was going to release some information that the handlers did not want him to. So he died in a hair in an airplane crash. And when they got there, the airplane was full of bullet holes. Yes, and I remember as Doug Hammarskjöld that when the plane started diving, I heard something hit the bottom of the plane. And when I yeah. was thrown from the wreckage, which is very common in plane fights, actually, most victims of plane crash are killed by fire on the ground. So as Doug, I was cast away from the plane. It was like a DC-6, I believe, maybe a DC-10, but probably a 6. There were only a few people on the flight. And several white men came over and shot me point blank. And I was telling friends in school that about Doc Hammarskjöld for years. I also said, hey, I was not gay in that life. I'm not in this. I am a, a straight male, and I've been for many lifetimes. And then I found a statement where Hammarskjöld said, because the unicorn did not find a mate, they called him perverse. So I've actually proven things about a Doc Hammarskjöld's sexual orientation that are true. And his death, he was shot on the ground. He did not die as a result of that plane crash. He was really? murdered on the ground. Hmm. He, 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 he was cast from the plane, and we think it was possibly some Rhodesian mercenaries who opposed his work on behalf of black people in the, in the Belgian Congo, yeah. or you know, predominantly black countries, who then shot him point blank. And I also knew, I remembered that as Hammarskjöld, when I turned 38, for some reason that had some kind of meaning to me personally, and because I hadn't found a, a mate by 38, I got an ID bracelet that just said dog on it because I was going to live a me mission in that life, albeit one for humanity, right? Because that was consistent with my values mm-hmm. as that great, sweet, you know, that, that great Swedish uh, individual that dog was. And I found that. I found a picture of that. He, it's been photographed. And uh, I've studied Doug Hammarskjöld a little bit, and I find that he had very much in common with Jack Kennedy before they did away with him, yeah. too. He was one of the good guys. And he actually won the, uh, what is it called? The, um, you know, he, he was the first person to win the Nobel Prize after death. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was right before JFK was killed. And they were, they were um, colleagues. They were consulting. So I think we have to go back and capture what the magic of Hammarskjöld and, and, and JFK were, because I think it's through that vision that will save the world. But I, I think I was possibly Hammarskjöld, maybe because I was coming into the world when he was leaving it, that I got his memories. Perhaps that's an explanation for... Uh, for reincarnation in general. It's not your own past lives, it's the, the past lives of people who, who have lived, and you're getting a psychic impression of the you know, uh, thought forms of, from those who have lived. Yeah. Certainly I wanted, I wanted to have you talk a little bit about Mars also, because you went there, and I would love to hear, what did you actually see there from, from someone well, that lived there? Yeah, yeah. Well, first of all, uh, we were going up through what's called an arc or aeronautical repositioning chamber. It's come to also be called a uh, jump room or space elevator. All three terms were used, and both arc and 
aeronautical repositioning chamber was used. The particular one I was using to get to Mars, which I did about 20 times between July 7th of 81 and August of 84, was at 999 North Sepulveda in El Segundo, California. The person who was directing the program was somebody who was supposed to be dead, and he was quite famous. His name was Howard Robard Hughes. I've also been interviewed by Major General Mark Music, who with his colleague um, Doug Wellman did that excellent book about Hughes. And uh, Major General Music is so certain that I worked with Hughes that he, he has agreed and has written the forward to my memoir about Mars. I also brought forward four other astronauts, uh, William Brett Stillings, Bernard Mendez, the late William White Crow, whose original name was William Paris, who had been one of my uh, trainers in Pegasus. He taught me martial arts. And uh, Ralph, Dr. Ralph Kennedy Johnston Sr. Now, um, we would drive down there to El Segundo. The building is right south of Los Angeles International Airport. We would go up through the middle elevator on the in the complex and we would get off at the fifth floor and it was there was like a Fijian suite like you have in law firms and somebody from the CIA would have us write our name sign our signature write our date of birth our social security number and our program number for Project Mars mine was my UCLA ID number 700-414-879 because I was then attending and studying history predominantly at University of California at Los Angeles. And then we would get back into the elevator and it would go up to the seventh floor if we had to get something out of our locker. Then it would we'd go back in and it would go up to the eighth floor. And in about five minutes, they would say, are you ready to go to Mars? And we were trained to look up at the center of the elevator and say, ready to depart for Mars. And then about five more minutes later, the box-like structure of that elevator would morph from a box into more of a cylinder-type shape. And that would go on for about 20 minutes. And then when we got to the Red Planet, anywhere from like 20 initially to ultimately eight minutes, it all depended on where Mars was uh, in its irregular uh, orbit around the sun, how much time we had to spend in the so-called arc. We were on the red planet in, you know, eight to, to uh, 20 minutes. And the, the door, the, the, the wall on the far side of that elevator would open up. And we were in the sub-basement of a U.S. facility on Mars. Now, if you believe that's impossible, look what we did just years earlier with the 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 atom bomb. Look at the fact that a, a general in Israel, Haim Ashed, confirmed that there are Americans working with extraterrestrials on Mars. He made that announcement on what December ninth of twenty twenty. So we have generals who are speaking out now. The 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 permanent secret government, the deep state, is failing. It is uh, it is panicking. When you've got a retired U.S. Air Force general 
like uh, Major General Mark Music writing a foreword to my Mars book, and General Ashed, literally the founder of the Israeli space program, is talking about Americans working with extraterrestrials on Mars. I mean, this is getting out of hand for the deep state. They're losing. And I'm happy to say I was one of the people that, that began their, their defeat. They are losing. They're losing the ability to lie to the people of this world. I have been telling the absolute truth on both of these subjects. Going to Mars was fairly hellish. There were, there were a number of predators, but there were two, two inevitably lethal predators if we got anywhere near them. As a young man, age 19 to 22, going to Mars, I saw two of my astronaut colleagues bitten to death by predators. You don't forget that. But in fact, we had been subject to memory suppression. And those five astronauts, including myself, Chicago, Stillings, Mendez, White, Crown, Johnston, we did not remember our memories for 25 years. We stopped going in 1984 and remembered our memories in uh, 2000 uh, or in, uh, yeah, two, 2000, uh, 2009. So that was 25 years. So that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's the reach of the deep state. They were using on us the so-called it was a reverse-engineered American version of a Soviet device known as the, the Lida machine. It would, you'd wear it as a helmet, and it would just completely discombobulate your thinking. Okay, So um, that's how they blocked our memories for 25 years. I, just, I came forward at a, uh, what was his name, James Gilliland event in Trout Lake, Washington in 2009. And then as a result of uh, my, my presentations, my fellow astronauts started coming, coming forward, at least some of them or a number of them. But there has been nobody else in the literature of the secret space program who has done that, who has brought forward five comrades, or no, four, four comrades, okay, and, and myself. I also affirm the works of uh, Michael C. Ralph or the claims of Michael C. Ralph and Arthur Neumann. They just knew too much about the ark to not have gone off planet via that device. Hmm. But I, you know, I wrote a letter to President Obama after he left office. I, that was dated uh, July 28th of uh, 2020. Now, when we came forward on the Stephen Colbert show, he made fun of us and said, look, the only contact I've had with Mars is watching Marvin of the Martians on Saturday morning cartoons with, uh, with my two daughters. And, uh, and yet after I wrote him that letter and told him that he would be a, a villain and, and, and despised for all history, if he didn't reveal he was not only the first black American to become president, but the first astronaut to become president. I didn't win. Ross Perot didn't win. Um, Marianne Eisenhower didn't win, although she was one of the Mars astronauts. Uh, she, she didn't run. She actually was the president of the People to People Ambassadors Program. And uh, what? who else? John Glenn, uh, Senator Bill Nelson. We've had a number of American astronauts who have run for the presidency, but Obama was not just the first black president. He was the first astronaut president. The problem is he was not from America. 
I mean, he was not born in America. He was yeah. born in Indonesia. So there, there was an, a reason to exercise the so-called birther controversy. Barack Obama's real name is Barry Sotoro, and he told me to his face as a future you know, president of a state bar and a, and a federal um, district court that um, his real name was Barry Sotoro, and he was born in Indonesia. I was actually legally required of that when I passed the Washington bar and then was admitted to the U.S. District Court for the Western District. I didn't have a choice to join the birther movement and reveal the truth about Obama. I was under an abiding legal obligation to do so, or I could have lost my law license. And it was, you know, a pearl of great price to me. It's how I was supporting myself. So people have a lot of opinions that have been shaped by this sort of intelligence community-driven sort of neuro-linguistic programming that's just not true information. And that is the truth. The, the Obama years were interesting, and some of his presidential service was quite good. And I, because I'm, I'm a fair person, I always said that he was a nice guy and a smart guy, even though he had made fun of us. But by not giving up and abiding by the truth principle and telling the truth about him, he changed his position. In a later episode, a recent episode of the Stephen Colbert uh, report, Stephen Colbert show, he said that there is a secret space program, but I can't talk about it. Now, that, that progress between 2012 and 2022 was major. We had a, a president recanting his former um, untrue statements. That almost never happens in politics. There's not enough of that, not, not enough apology, not enough correction of untrue information that they've offered. But uh, President Barack Obama, as he's now known, did not call himself by that and gave me a different birthplace when I was in, tra- in training for him at College of the Siskiyous in uh, August and September pardon me, of 1980. So when somebody has said something to your face when you're a kid, I was 18 years old and he had just turned 19. You don't forget it. Okay. That's a very sensitive and impressionable age of life. And I never yeah. forgot that he told me his name was Barry Satoro. I even said to him, um, oh, wow, man, we have names that are kind of the same cadence. Andy Bashago, Barry Satoro. And he said, yeah, man, going to be, going to be fun. Uh, training for Mars. And, and, uh, he said, I, I, he said something very intelligent. He said, because um, he is a smart guy. He said, I just can't get my mind around the fact that when we're up there, Earth is going to be over our heads. And I said, I know that's because that's something that most human beings have never done. And we're going to get the chance to do that. So he is a deep person and he was a, a nice guy training with him, a good sense of humor. He was fair to others. And uh, so I've told the truth about about uh, Obama, as he's now known, even though he basically made fun of us when he first came forward. And that was not the truth principle. That was an attempt to preserve his political viability by not even having to deal with the Mars question. Uh, but he finally has now admitted that there is a secret space program. Yeah. And there's one more thing that I've really wondered about, and that is when you go into this machine, I'm going to call it, 
and go to Mars, how do they pinpoint the destination? Or does the funnel do that by itself? Is it mind-directed or is it keyed into the program by computer? Or did they talk about how do you end up at your destination and not in just empty space? Well, that's been the question with all quantum access devices. I mean, I I speak of the of the ARC, the Aeronautical Repositioning Chamber, as the eighth of those eight devices uh, used by Project Pegasus. In fact, my colleague Bernie Mendez claimed that Project Mars really was an extension of uh, Project Pegasus, and we actually may have not been going there physically. I mean, I've leave, I've left open the possibility that we were engaged in sort of an, an exoplanetary form of chronovision. Um, but I don't know because I was a chrononaut and not a time-space time right. scientist. Most of the people on Pegasus were people like my dad and Harold Agnew of, of the uh, Los Alamos Labs and Edward Teller and people like that, Sterling Colgate of New Mexico Tech. These were the leading physicists in the country. In fact, uh, Dr. Harold Agnew had been part of all critical stages of Project Manhattan. He was helping in, uh, the physicist Enrico, Dr. Enrico Fermi control the graphite rods during CP1, which was the critical pile one. They were testing the atomic pile, atomic fission. He was in Los Alamos when the bomb was designed and built and tested at the Trinity site. He took the nuclear trigger from Los Alamos to the island of Tinian that was put aboard the plane that dropped the bomb on Hiroshima. And he was even calibrating the, the magnitude of the Hiroshima blast um, detonation of the explosion from a chase plane called the Great Artiste. So if there was any American who was part of Project Manhattan it was Harold Agnew. And notice how he was put on the time travel program after World War II. What did they do? They bragged about their nuclear capabilities. Because remember, uh, it, was the, it was Truman's Secretary of State, James F. Burns, who had been everything in American society. He'd been a senator from South Carolina. He'd been a Supreme Court justice. He had, been, he had run for vice president with somebody, I think it was with FDR. He convinced Truman to drop the bomb on, on Japan to put the Soviets on notice for what they would be living with, what, who they would be in competition with after the war ended. That was proved in a fascinating book by a, a Yale and Cambridge graduate named Gar Alperovitz. It was to put the Soviet Union on notice. It was not to prevent any battlefield deaths from asking our, our soldiers, like most of our fathers, to invade the Japanese islands. That's what they were told as fighting men. But Secretary of State Burns convinced Truman it would, put, it would be a good thing to put the uh, Soviet Union on notice. And they did. That led to the nuclear arms race that so many of us have been dealing with, trying to, trying to stop. Yeah. But no, I don't know exactly how they isolated where they were sending the ark. I don't even know really what the ark was. They never told us. 
we knew we were going up in it. We had practiced that up in, up in that College of the Siskiyous. They had a mock-up of the Ark, and we experienced um, what it would be like a little bit. It was, wasn't a very good uh, device. You know, it wasn't, wasn't a very good the model type imitation of what we'd actually be going in. But I just started to get uh, tired of being asked, do you want to go to Mars? When I first went up there on July 7th of 1981, and I, I uh, took, took some, a quote from uh, astronaut Alan Bartlett Shepard uh, from 1961, the year of my birth. And I said to Courtney Hunt of the CIA, who was controlling the device at that, during that jump, I said, light this candle. <laughs> so it, it was, we were just sort of <laughs> being thrown right into the frying pan. I mean, they didn't really, I wasn't in the arc that long. And Courtney Hunter, the CIA, kept asking me, are you ready to go, Andy? And, you're, and I, I, I lost patience. And I said, light this candle. Because you don't want to stand in some building in El Segundo, California, and think too long that you're going to be taking an elevator-like device to another planet. But that's yeah. what we were doing. Wow. Wow. And why, why would I endanger my law licenses in Washington at the federal and state level by making yeah. up some story? How how is it is it that the four of the guys that came forward were telling the, st- the same story? Yeah, it's yeah. always been true. Exactly. Why have all these people made similar claims in the evolving literature, of the secret space program? Many yeah. of whom I do not believe. It's because it really happened, and it just shows the degree to which the American people have not been told the truth about space, the space program, extraterrestrial life. I mean, there were two. There were two species of humanoid on Mars. There was one that we call Homo martis martis, which are means Martian on Mars, and then Homo martis terris, which means um, Earth person on Mars. And we both had encounters with both with all, both of those, and that is being kept back from the American people, even though the NARA Act of 1958, which created the U.S. space program, what we now know as NASA, um, the National Aeronautic and Space Administration. It gave, as the primary mission of NARA, before it became NASA, the expansion of human knowledge of space and the near-Earth environment. That was the mandate of the American people through their congressional representatives. That's what's been compromised. NASA is basically a military-run disinformation program. Mm. 11 of the 12 American men who, for example, walked on the moon were military. The only non-military person who walked on the moon so far, as far as we know, was a geologist named Harrison Schmidt of New Mexico. That's it. All of the others, Armstrong, Aldrin, and uh, Dr. the uh, doctor, uh, I'm blanking on his name. Anyway, all all the individuals who have walked on the moon, they were all they, military. They were mostly test pilots, weren't they? Yes, most of them have been test pilots for different branches, yeah. Navy, uh, Air Force, and so forth. Mm. But, you know, uh, there, there were also other people who served on Project Mars that have also been forgotten. and. We were always talking about them, like Ross Perot, mm. like I and a, a fellow uh, 
presidential candidate. Um, the um, admiral, um, that admiral that Jimmy Carter appointed director of the CIA, um, Admiral Stansfield Turner. When Admiral Stansfield Turner walked over to Bernie Mendez and I on the surface, what was that? Mm-hmm. I thought he was that famous UFO researcher, Peter Byrne, because he was dressed in this fancy suit with a fancy cap and a cravat and everything. And I said, oh, Bernie, look, look, uh, Peter Byrne is here. And it was it was Admiral Stansfield Turner, Jimmy Carter's CIA director. So there was a, a strong CIA and a strong Navy connection to Project Mars, but it was really an interagency task force. So, yeah. you know, in the blogosphere, one writer starts calling something by some name that, that satisfies them, but it was never the CIA Mars jump room program. It was an interagency task force involving the ARC, the Aeronautical Repositioning Chamber. Mm-hmm. So before, we're almost out of time and I'm so sorry. This is just, I am just wrapped um, by everything that you're saying. We had a question that I couldn't quite fit in uh, from from the beginning of the show, um, our friend Margaret okay. just was wondering um, why why were they doing Project Pegasus? What was what was the future you know intention of that? What was the purpose? They wanted essentially DARPA was testing the response of we children to those technologies. That, that's a direct quote from my father, given me when I was about twenty six years old. I mean, years later, because I left Pegasus when I was. Oh God, about, about 10 or 11. I've been in this since I was six unofficially, but then from age eight forward uh, officially, uh, September of uh, 1969. But I was asking a lot of questions of my dad t- toward the, my late 20s and toward the end of his life. And I'm glad I did because he told me a lot. Yeah. Now, they, they were using children because we were necessities. What I mentioned about the holograms on the chronovisor going on the blink. We are, we're experimentees. If, if they used, for example, teleportation, Tesla teleportation of any of those kinds, just real fast, real time transit or travel, you know, to the, the, the future and past, or initially the, the past and then the future. Um, if we were expected not to go crazy, as some adults who were time traveling were. We were not necessities or experimentees. I like to say we were sanies. We would hold on mm. to our mind. We were yeah. trainees because we were going to be the first generation of children to be time traveling from the, from the childhood. So just like Jean-Michel and Philippe Cousteau, the children of, of the great uh, Jacques-Yves Cousteau, mm-hmm. uh, who you know invented the scuba and everything and all those great documentaries? They we would be comfortable time traveling, just like uh, I imagine that uh, Jean Michel is still scuba diving, right? You just do something so young, you're comfortable with it. Yeah. And th- those were sort of the generalized reasons. We were sort of time space cadets who were trainees, yeah. and uh, we were also what I, what I like to call viewies. They knew that children because their perceptions are not biased by the selection bias of their previous experiences, but adults are. They told us how they could expect to, for example, 
send us to the year 2200. Yeah. And we would see something on somebody's, on somebody's holster. Now, yeah. in those kinds of experiments, the adult time travelers would always say they had a gun in their holster. But the yeah. kids would say something more accurate, like they had some kind of mathematical device or something, some kind of technical device in a holster like a pistol. So they found we were sort of more capable viewees, more capable seer of what we were looking at in, in time which of course would always be not our contemporary time. Hey, yes. Andrew. Yeah, we are really down to the last end uh -huh. here. It's, yeah. it's obvious that the more you do of it, the more comfortable you're going to get. I know that from flying. After a while, you get more comfortable getting in the cockpit than you do driving your car. So anyway, we thank you so much. Thank you so much. Being with a yeah, disc. I'd be happy to do other, more shows if you want more time with Mars. That would be um, wonderful. Yeah, yeah, no problem. It's uh, yeah, it's a very complex subject, and there were some really uh, there were some really talented people on it. You know? Yeah, we need to dig into the dirt on Mars Mars a little more. Yeah, so, let's set let's set that up for the not too distant futures. That would be wonderful. Yeah. Andrew, thank you so much. My goodness. You're, you're welcome. Yeah, thank yeah, you, guys. Good. A lot of this is going to be coming up, by the way. We're, we're living in a time where there's going to be more, there is going to be more disclosure. There's going to be like a flip in the characteristic concealment of stuff because they're yeah. finding that the millennials will just not buy it. They all grew up with the internet, at least those now, what? Um, yes. And uh, 25 also, years or so in Denver, yeah. 28 years in Denver. One more thing at the end here. Where can they go to see more of your shows? Is that a place like projectpegasus.info? Is that still up there? That's still up there, but a lot of those were just occasional papers that I was writing. Um, okay. I have a friend who's collecting all my work. In fact, he was doing me the good service of saving it in real time because I have to go on and do a new radio or tv show and i didn't have enough time to save my 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 work and a friend has so that's a project that is ongoing to mm -hmm. put those and there's new tv shows coming out so i just um like to mention that but i can't talk about what shows because i'm under uh, confidentiality agreements yeah, but right. just just stay in the paranormal vein mm -hmm. on television because there is, there is a kind of a gradual sort of sort of embrace of the of the truthers, mm -hmm. and I'm rather optimistic that we're going to get past all of these cover-ups, including the one about ETs. I don't, for example, I don't believe that the government is lying to us to hide the ET presence. I think the ETs, ETs have required it because mm -hmm. they. They they know that we're not ready to be sort of invited into the galactic uh, family, the galactic federation, whatever it is, whatever it's called, whoever's running it. Mm -hmm. They just see too much war, too much poverty, too much starvation, too much suffering, and they're yeah. concerned about our sanity. Yeah. <laughs> so when we get our act together, I think the the UFO cover up will be one of the first things to fall. Because I don't coming. believe it's our government. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the the government's now talking about all these pilot sightings. Well, there were ten thousand 
informed pilot sightings released in 1989. Now there's another round of pilot sightings that they're making seem like new information. It's not. Same kind of stuff came out in greater at greater numbers in uh, in the 80s. We're down so, to the show, so we got to go, but thank you again. So sorry, yes. Okay, all right. Just give me a call. We'll set up another show if you'd like. We will absolutely do that. Thank you so much. This was just spellbinding for me. Thank you, everybody in the chat room. Really good conversation. We'll have Andrew back on in the not-too-distant future. Augie Mack, thanks, everybody. And we'll see you maybe Friday at 7.30 for a quick quantum well-being show. Um, If not... We'll see you next Tuesday. Much love, everybody. Take good care.